Agencies across the federal government are turning to applied science and technology to modernize and improve mission delivery. We'll be presenting a series of interviews with federal executives overseeing programs and meeting challenges with science and technology. Today's discussion, Data Horizons in the Intelligence Community, is sponsored by Noblis. Here's your host, Tom Temin. Welcome to the show. The IC and its component agencies are dealing with a growing amount of open source, commercial, and agency-generated data. This has technical and human capital challenges. For an update, I spoke to the Deputy Director of the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, Tanya Wilkerson. But first, you'll hear from Dr. Tracy Dixon, Principal Deputy Director of National Intelligence. We started with a status report on open source data. We do collect a lot of data here in the IC, and that's both through our own collection, through people and sensors, as well as by purchasing data that's available commercially or obtaining data that's available through open source. I would say over the course of the history of this community, We see a lot more data coming in through all of those mechanisms now. And so our conversation has become far more about how do we how do we better curate the data? How do we better create those strategies that are going to allow us to leverage all the data, no matter where it's from, in a pretty much an agnostic way. So it's not centered on the sensor that collected it or the platform that collected it. It's all about the data and whether the data is usable together with other types of data and whether it is ready for machines or ready for artificial intelligence to actually be applied to it. So is the data AI ready? Is it in a place that's discoverable? Is it able to be used and fused with other types of data sources so that we can speed up the time it takes to actually get those actionable insights from it? Sure. And early on in the data era and in the online era, the intelligence community was one of the leading federal institutions in establishing kind of the wiki approach to sharing and establishing sharing environments. How has that been affected in recent times by this infusion of the open source and in some cases, even commercial data. It's interesting, Tom, if you think about why we, why ODNI in particular was created, it was really for that intelligence integration because we found that the data, although it was in different repositories, wasn't actually making it to all the people that needed to see it. Fast forward, we've been around for over 17 years as the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, and we're in a much different place. I would say the data is a lot more accessible to the variety of organizations. And the question becomes less of how do I get access to your data then how do I take all of the data and derive insights from it? I would say in, how do you derive those insights from it all as as one complete set of data, as opposed to doing it serially and figuring out what your insights are from one particular intelligence type of data, and then bringing it together with the other ones. How do you put it all together in the beginning and then see what sort of insights you can define? And that includes the classified data, the unclassified data, uh, you know, purchase data as well. And I don't want to get you too deep into the technical weeds here, but I imagine that has made quite a challenge for the information technology people who have to keep things separated in some sense because classified is still classified last I checked and yet it sometimes is blended with unclassified and that's a difficult thing to handle as especially with people working remotely now and so on. I would agree they're they're definitely up to the challenge they've been creating these data strategies that are IC wide now as opposed to each agency having a data strategy and I think we'll be hearing a lot more of that going forward because that really is going to be how we're going to achieve these faster timelines and uh, more uh, more complete insights for the customers that are depending on us to be able to make sense out of all that data. And I wonder what the effect has been of this new approach to data on people, personnel, human capital, because 
I think recently you said at a forum publicly to college students that don't rule out the history major, don't rule out the someone who could be an iconoclast in the way we look at things and not just the traditional analytical types of functions we might have traditionally wanted to bring in. We are always hiring all sorts of backgrounds, all sorts of disciplines here in the community because we find that it makes for better outputs. It makes for better insights. We are focused these days on also bringing in a lot of data savvy people, and whether that is the data strategists, the coders. We want people who can help us manipulate the data in ways that allows it to be analyzed more efficiently or more effectively, or again, to be able to bring in those different kinds of insights at the same time. But we will never, ever not need people who are more focused on the social sciences, who know the history, who know uh, international relations. Like Those people pair together with people who know the technology, who know how to take the bits and make sense of them and how to visualize them in ways that help us to derive insights. That's always going to be that's going to be where you're going to see us going forward even more. So it's going to be a, you know, sort of cast a wide net in terms of the types of talent that we're trying to bring into the community now. It's almost the difference between the arranger and the conductor of a score, you know, both bring a different, I guess, side to it. And exactly. Recently, I was talking to an analyst in the commercial sector who mentioned that he had discovered a piece of insight by reading Chinese sources in Mandarin. He happens to be versed in Mandarin, having spent a lot of time in Taiwan. And there are nuances and signal words that are used, say, within a country like China in Chinese talking to Chinese that if you look at it on the surface, it doesn't mean much. But if you know the nuance, oh, my gosh, there's some real wisdom here. How does that come into all of this in in the data-driven world where nuance, inflection, coded ways of communication can really make a big piece of insight if you can find it. The people that need the intelligence that we're deriving rely on us to be able to understand those nuances and insights, which means that we have to do a better job of, frankly, bringing in native speakers, people who have spent time in country, people who have maybe family connections that they actually understand from a foundational level what these insights are. That does change the way that we recruit and hire. It changes the way that we have to sort of manage our risk because certainly the more time people spend overseas, the more connections they're going to have that are foreign that you're going to have to look into. It actually ends up being a very, it's a great goal to have to know that you want to increase the, the amount of language talent, but it does challenge our system a little bit in that we have to figure out how to manage the risk differently. Uh, But there's certainly a risk in not being able to bring in enough language speakers. And I think all of our agencies now are recognizing that there's a great need for more people who are not only speak languages, but speak them to the level where they understand those nuances. Right, because not to pick on China, but someone could learn Mandarin as an adult and be able to navigate China. But that doesn't mean you really have that idiomatic understanding. Exactly. And, And that would go for many other countries as well. So the challenge is how can we bring in idiomatically capable Chinese people, but, you know, it's a rival nation and you always have to have that concern at the back of your mind. I mean, the beauty of this country is that we have so many people who are Americans, but have a lot of family ties or are are Asian Americans, are Chinese Americans themselves. And so there is a population that we can pull from to bring into the community. We just have to make sure that people understand that, you know, we definitely need your talent. People are welcome here. I think over, over time, there's been a perception by folks that it takes longer to get through our processes. And we have to make sure that that is not the case. Or if it is the case, we have to make sure that we understand what is causing those lengths and then be able to focus on it. So we also are 
looking at our security clearance processes and how to reform those going forward. Yeah, I imagine the uh, continuous monitoring that has come into security clearance is a big help so that as people's circumstances change, you know whether it might actually affect their security or whether it's just you got to pay your bills this month. Exactly. We're very excited about the continuous vetting is, is the term that we're using. And it's going to allow us to leverage data that's already out there, you know, those sort of digital and financial footprints that we all already have to be able to assess if people are running into issues. And so in addition to it being useful for the security clearance process, we think it's also going to be an early indicator if people are running into any other troubles. Whether it's financial troubles or troubles that sort of manifest themselves in their financial in their financial lives, we hope to be able to intercede more quickly. Uh, and so it actually is not only going to benefit the clearance side of things, but I think it'll benefit the workforce from a health and resilient side as well. And getting back to some of the interpretation questions and language questions, so many agencies are talking about artificial intelligence, and it's such a broad term that it almost only has meaning in context. Otherwise, it's like food, sustenance. It means whatever the context is, if you're you know, a sheep or a human being. My question is, what are you doing with AI? What are the trends? What are the big grand challenges for AI within the IC? I think from its most basic level, the first thing that I'm excited about is how do we automate processes that right now take a lot of time, but that really don't require a lot of critical thinking to do them. There are repetitive processes that are part of any part of analysis, any part of our business processes, that if we can speed those up by, al- by allowing the machines to help us, then we can get things done more effectively and efficiently, and then be able to really spend that brain power on something else. And so automation is the first step. Augmentation. So how do you have the machines help you look for trends? How do you have them help you look for anomalies within the data that you have? And that's sort of step number two. The, the, the third step and the one that probably will take the most amount of time is getting to an actual artificial intelligence where it's coming up with recommendations. It's coming up with its own assessments. It's coming up with its own ability to kind of figure out insights that we will still then have people take a look at. I mean, there'll be some time before we're letting the machines do anything on their own. But we can move in a direction where the machines are absolutely helping us and and perhaps even putting things together and coming up with, with a solution set that is different than what the human brain might have come up with. Sure. And there's a couple of different approaches. One is, I call it the Watson approach, and just because IBM used that term, but it's an approach where you put all of the known literature into a big bucket and then the algorithms are applied to that limited universe. It seems like a lot, but it's not. It's a limited universe, and so that all the contexts maybe are the same and this kind of thing, versus open source data thrown at it, which could introduce all sorts of biases because words have different meanings in different contexts. Is there one way or the other that seems most promising here, or you're trying them on all fronts experimentally? I think we're looking at, we're looking at a lot of different ways and what will be the best bang for the buck for our communities. And it may differ by the types of data sets that you have. What you apply to a set of images may be different than you apply to a set of audio files, maybe different than you apply to a set of analytic products that you're trying to go back and then assess what the content is and what the, you know, the analytic line is, for example. So it depends. It depends. But I think we'll be trying. I think people are trying various methods to see what will be what will deliver the best effect for their mission. And is a lot of the effort cooperative with, say, the direct DOD units. I mean, there's a whole Jake Joint Artificial Intelligence Center in the armed services. IC is connected to the Defense Department, but kind of a separate creature. But is there cross 
fertilization going on there? Absolutely. We work very, very closely with the Department of Defense within within our intelligence community. We also work very closely with academia and industry that are working in these, as do they. So it really is a larger, the larger partnership that I think is going to help us achieve the most in how do you apply artificial intelligence most effectively within the intelligence community missions to derive actionable insights as quickly as possible for those that need them. I wanted to just ask you about the COVID question at the outbreak of this a couple of years ago. Probably the most challenge was felt by the intelligence community because of the skiff need, contractors and employees with clearance working together. There's no real practical way that they can handle a lot of material outside. How is it settled out now, now that we're past the pandemic, the technologies, the procedures are much more mature than they were in 2020. What's it look like? I would say it looks, because so much of the data that we're working with is classified, it probably doesn't look that much different than it did before the pandemic for a number of missions. There are agencies who have found ways to do things on the unclassified systems, secure unclassified systems, I'll say, because they have unclassified data sets that they actually work with more frequently. For those agencies, I think they found a balance where they've been able to figure out what people can continue to do from home and then what people must do in a skiff itself. For other agencies, it's going to look a lot like it did before, where you're, you're spending the bulk of your time here and maybe your uh, your ability to do some telework may be limited to training or maybe limited to a conference that you attend or something like that. So we're trying to find the right balance, but certainly there's an appetite for more flexibility in where people work, how people work. We are limited, though, in what we will be able to achieve. Long-term. Dr. Tracy Dixon is Principal Deputy Director of National Intelligence. We'll take a short break, and when we return, we'll hear from Tanya Wilkerson, Deputy Director of the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency. You're listening to Data Horizons in the Intelligence Community, sponsored by Noblis, here on Federal News Network. I'm Tom Temin. Tackling national challenges that continue to rise and change rapidly can be difficult. Noblis can help. Noblis brings together the best of science, technology, and engineering to solve complex challenges, like improving transportation and infrastructure systems, countering threats from weapons of mass destruction, and enhancing the operability of naval surface ships. For 25 years, Noblis has been an innovator with the federal government, investing in advanced R&D, enriching lives, and making our nation safer. Noblis, for the best of reasons. Visit NOB. LIS.org to learn more. Welcome back to Tackling Challenges Through Science and Technology, sponsored by Noblis. I'm Tom Temin. For this segment of our focus on data in the intelligence community, I spoke with Tanya Wilkerson, the Deputy Director of the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency. As an organization that's focused on uh, geospatial intelligence, we do face the ever-growing challenge of uh, large volumes of data and needing to be able to quickly analyze that information and turn it into um, actionable intelligence. And so we do see in the coming years, the next five to 10 years, that we're going to have a significant increase in the volume data for which we will need to to be able to quickly assess and analyze. So that must lead to a need to invest in a lot of tools for analysis and also just some infrastructure to handle all of this. And uh, without getting too deep in the technical weeds, maybe let's talk about first the uh, technical infrastructure, cloud computing and so forth, because these volumes get very, very large especially as you collect more commercial data as part of the general analytical scheme. Yeah, I think our success in this arena depends on a couple of things. First, it's talent. It's having the right talent um, to be able to um, ensure that we're able to you know, analyze this ever-increasing magnitude uh, of data. Primarily, uh, we are focused on STEM-related talent at this time, but that does not mean that we don't have work roles that require majors from across, uh, you know, broader than uh, the STEM perspective. 
so we're focused on how we, you know, grow our talent as well as um, how we recruit talent. And then to get back to the piece of the technology piece, it's a combination of um, having the right people and the right technology that is going to help us to make sure that we're successful with respect to our overall data challenge. You know, one of the things that um, that we're focusing on is uh, AI and ML, so artificial intelligence and machine learning and those capabilities, because that helps us to be able to quickly identify patterns of interest for our analysts then to review and then to be able to get rapidly get intelligence into the hands of our customers. So combining right the right talent with the technology helps us to be able to to sift through the large volumes of data that we have and the increase that we expect. So are you in a hiring mode at this point in general? And what types of skills do you specifically look for? I think it came up recently when you and I were on a panel discussion that history majors can actually be pretty good at analytics in a national security situation. But you also need the highly technical people also. You mentioned STEM. So tell us what your openings look like qualitatively and how you're going about getting them filled. It's great. So we're hiring across all majors. And I, I do recall that discussion regarding uh, regarding history majors. Um, the nice thing about the work that we do is that um, it spans a broad uh, swath. So when you think about, um, for instance, human geography, right, those are individuals that not necessarily would have a STEM background, but would bring a more of a social science background to the table to help us to understand the people that live in the areas for which we want to understand what's, what's happening. That's not just, uh, that's only one uh, particular area. The hard sciences, of course, are other areas that we're focused on. So when I noted STEM, certainly we have uh, a number of acquisition activities that we focus on. And so for that, those uh, items, especially as it relates to technology acquisitions, we certainly need to have some technologists. And then because I mentioned that, you know, we really operate in the domains from seabed to space, it is important for us to have people that uh, have majors in some of the hard sciences as well to help to ensure that, you know, we've got mathematicians, we've got scientists, right, we've got geodesists, those sorts of um, talented people to help with our mission every single day. And something you implied, something you said a moment ago, implied the need for acquisition people, technology people, and the analytical part of NGA itself to collaborate because the tools, the technologies needed have to somehow support the questions you're asking at the mission level, correct? Correct. Correct. And so when we think about how that relates to the leveraging uh, greater technology, right, that analytic background helps us to understand what's the best way to leverage technology to modernize, for instance, our analytic workflow as a particular area. So it's the combination of both of those skill sets that is really important. And what are some of the grand analytical challenges going on? And I wanted to see how those might relate to artificial intelligence, because a lot of units in the intelligence community are using AI mainly to automate the mundane, but they're a little bit slower at this point on purpose of applying it to analytical skills because they don't want to get wrong results or biased results, and you need that human intuition in so many cases experience. So maybe talk about what are some of the big challenges for analysis right now, like identifying circles from space or whatever it might be, and then uh, you know 
what the tool strategy is for enabling people to do better analysis and faster. No worries. So um, as you've already noted, it really comes at no surprise that uh, from an agency perspective, we've been using artificial intelligence and machine learning, along with automation and augmentation for, uh, for many years. Uh, really what we're focusing on is how do we harness the potential of AIML to increase the speed and the capability of our nation's military and humanitarian response efforts. We're currently employing advanced analytics, and that helps us to discover and provide tip-offs and alerts to systems, collectors, and analysts. Our analysts are able to interact effectively with data and models. They are able to discover new objects and ask intelligence questions differently based on the power of the data analytics. But what we realize is that we also need to innovate at speed, at a speed and scale that matches this dynamic threat landscape of the 21st century. So that's really what the challenge is, is the speed and the scale. So what that is leading us down the path of doing is making sure that we're investing smartly through deliberate and well-planned and um, interoperable government and industry engagements. We're also working to automate uh, significant portions of our imagery exploitation and our reporting workflows which I mentioned earlier, the analytic workflow modernization effort. Some of that includes things like leveraging computer vision that helps us to more rapidly exploit data. It also includes using advanced modeling techniques to understand, correlate, and predict activity. And then the last piece of that would be integrating automation and modeling capabilities to really prompt more dynamic collection. And you mentioned workflow in the analysis mission and When people hear the word workflow, they think of, well, this piece of paper goes to this desk and then that box is checked off on on a screen and then it moves on to so-and-so. That's not precisely what you mean in workflow, is it, in this context? It's not precisely. When we think about analytic workflows, we should be thinking about it from the perspective of being able to, in the modernization of it, automatically detect, identify, characterize, extract, and attribute features in in objects and imagery and and video. And then using that information to be able to flag quickly for our analysts, such that the technology is doing more of the work and the analysts are able to really focus on the things that we need people to focus on. And there are a lot of structures and shapes in the earth. I've looked at some of the maps, you know, in North Korea and so forth, just out of curiosity, to the extent someone external can get close to that type of information. And do you find that with the emergence of these new capabilities that the NGA might go over what you thought was well understood from prior years and relook at things and maybe gain new understanding from old phenomena or old sightings or old data? Well, certainly um, being able to leverage information that has been made available in the past certainly does help to correlate changes over time, as well as help to inform current intelligence reporting. By the way, are people taking a look at that volcano in Hawaii? Is there anything to be learned from a, from a space type of view there? So, of course, our mission from an NGA perspective is broad reaching. And so if there is something happening in the world, we are certainly interested. I imagine a lot of eyes and space are looking down on that one. And while we have you, tell us a little bit about your background, how you came to be Deputy Director of NGA. 
Sure. So I am. Um, I actually uh, entered into the intelligence community right out of high school, believe it or not. And uh, it was part of a, a program at the time that was seeking to bring more uh, individuals of a diverse background into the intelligence community. So I came in through a student program. And I, I'm really excited about the fact that here at NGA, we continue to offer those types of student programs. I came on board actually uh, as a CIA officer into a student program and spent many years working at the NRO as part of my background. And so that gives the linkage to space or the National Reconnaissance Office for those that might not be familiar. And so that gives the linkage to space. And so at the NRO, I spent time working not only on research and development, but also acquisition and operations. And then I've held uh, assignments, of course, at the CIA proper as well. One of the things that I am really happy about as a community is that we can continue to invest in developing that next pipeline of the workforce to come into the intelligence community and that we do so through engagement and then within the Department of Defense as well, and that we do so through the engagement of uh, student programs. Tanya Wilkerson, Deputy Director of the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency. Earlier, you heard from Dr. Stacy Dixon, Principal Deputy Director of National Intelligence. For more on this discussion or to share it with colleagues, please visit federalnewsnetwork.com and search Insights. I'm Tom Temin. Thank you for listening to the discussion, Data Horizons in the Intelligence Community, sponsored by Noblis on Federal News Network.